Well, it's such a privilege to be with you today. It's such a uh, privilege to be a Christian. God saves sinners. That's good news, isn't it? I am uh, so thankful that Christianity is more than just coming to church and trying to be a, a nice person, but that uh, Christianity is really about what God has done through Jesus Christ for sinners. And we are here because God has uh, saved us. He has worked in our lives. He has reached down and shown us the beauty of Christ. And uh, we're here to listen to God speak through his word. He speaks through what he's spoken. And uh, that is like the greatest privilege of our lives. So if you'll uh, take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's a little uh, funny because I started a sermon last week and I didn't finish it. So we're going to finish it. This would have been like the world's, uh, would have been a very long sermon, not the world's longest sermon probably because of the Puritans and all of that, but it would have been a pretty long uh, sermon. So we're going to finish this sermon today and that's good because uh, we're talking about how to make an impact on someone else for Jesus. In other words, we're talking about discipleship, which is fitting, I think, for uh, Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, Marta got back last night from 10 days away, so I'm very thankful for mothers today. We're really, our whole family is so grateful. And obviously this isn't uh, quite a special Mother's Day sermon, but this is a big part of your job as a mom. What do moms do? Well, one of the primary things mom do, moms do is disciple their children. And yet it's not just your mom uh, job as a mom, it's also our job as a church. Last week we looked at Matthew chapter 28 and saw that sometime before Jesus ascended into heaven, he looked at his followers and said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And we call that the great commission. And what is a commission? It's a duty, it's a command. And even that, more than that, it's a mission. This is our mission. We are not here to have a nice building. We're not here just to listen to good music. We're obviously not here uh, to be entertained. We're not here just to be with people that we like. We're not here to be as comfortable as possible and then die. We are here to make disciples. Now, uh, again, last week, first of all, we talked about what that means. What are we talking about when we talk about making disciples? Well, first of all, we're not talking about something that only pastors do. Though pastors should do it, pastors should be like the church's lead disciple makers. It's not just their responsibility. It is our responsibility as a church to make disciples. And when we talk about making disciples, we're not just talking about a program either. Like, how do we make disciples? We have a special class or uh, something super formal maybe, like I disciple, will you be my disciple? Yes, I'll be your disciple. When we talk about discipleship, instead we're talking about intentional friendships with a spiritual goal. Basically, we're talking about being a, a good friend. In other words, when we talk about discipleship, we're talking about entering into relationships with people, not just because they're fun to be around, or not just because we look the same or not just because they have something to offer you, but instead for the purpose of helping them know Christ if they don't know him, sharing the gospel and seeing them converted. And if they are converted, helping them know Jesus better and obey Jesus better, teaching them what they need to know 
in order to live for Jesus and then working with them so that they can use their gifts for Jesus and go out and do the same thing that you're doing with them, with others, to help them become disciples who make disciples. I like how one author explains it. When we make disciples, we are working to see people who do not follow Jesus come to follow him, conversion, and then teaching them to faithfully follow Jesus in every area of their lives, maturity. So you've got a young man who is super lazy and he's using his time in a very selfish way and one of his friends in care group notices and begins reaching out to him and getting together with him and talking about laziness and the gospel and helping him make a plan for putting off living for his selfish desires and putting on self-discipline and living for the glory of God. That's discipleship. Or you've got a dad who doesn't really know how to be a dad and he notices someone in the church who's modeling faithful fatherhood. And so he goes to him and he asks for help and they start spending time with each other and spending time with their families and talking about how to relate to their children in a way that honors God. That's discipleship. Or you've got this guy who is fired up about evangelism and so he's getting together with a couple guys from the church and they're starting to pray about taking the gospel out and then he's taking them with him and they're sharing and he's sharing and they're talking about it as they go home. That's discipleship. Or you've got this mom who's sitting down on the floor with her daughter who's crying because she didn't get what she wanted and that mom's talking with her about what's going on in her heart and sin and Jesus that's discipleship. Or you've got a teenager who's at school and, and she notices someone who's being bullied. And so she begins sitting with them and talking with them and over time starts asking questions and they develop a friendship and her friend opens up and they start talking about how she's lonely. And so she invites her to youth group and on the way home from youth group, they start talking about the message and about Jesus and what it all means. That's discipleship. It's tempting maybe to hear me uh, talking about discipleship. This is kind of our vision Sundays, last Sunday, this Sunday, and, and to think maybe, oh, he's talking about something we're not doing that we need to start doing, and maybe that's true for some, I don't know, but I don't think that's really true for many. I think there's a lot of discipleship actually going on at this church. And so in saying this is our vision for 2021, we're just saying this is important. Like, this is really important. In fact, all this other stuff that people tend to think about when they think about church, like nice buildings or amount of people that go or special programs, all that kind of stuff is honestly really just extra. It's just extra. You can have it or you cannot have it. It's this ordinary work of discipleship that's really essential. I honestly, literally would rather be meeting outside under a tree with 12 people who are committed to discipleship than standing in front of a, on a stage in front of thousands who are just showing up for entertainment. This is, when it comes to church, this is essential discipleship. We need to highlight it. This needs to happen. And we need to think about how can we get better 
at making disciples. If we want to be good at anything, we want to be good at making disciples, helping people know Jesus, obey Jesus, and, and serve Jesus. And to answer that, we started looking at the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Uh, because next to Jesus, he's got to be the world's greatest disciple maker. And there are like a million different places we could look at to learn from Paul. Pretty much open any one of his letters, put your finger down, you're going to learn something. But we're focusing on 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2 and just highlighting eight different characteristics that we can learn from Paul about someone who is making an impact on others through discipleship. First, you remember, and these are pretty obvious, but he tells other people the gospel. If you're going to disciple, you've got to tell other people the gospel. Before there ever was a First Thessalonians, there was Paul in Thessalonians telling people the gospel. There is this message in the Bible that is the most important message in the world, the gospel. And if you are going to disciple, you have to tell other people the gospel. And if you're going to tell other people the gospel, you have to know the gospel and be enjoying the gospel. Sometimes we wonder why are we not evangelizing and why are our friendships with others not more discipleship oriented? And I think a lot of times it comes down to the fact that we just aren't filled up with joy in Christ and hope in God because of what he's done through Christ in the gospel. I was coming home from work last week and I was thinking about what God deserves. You probably, you've had these moments, I'm sure, how God is so holy and he's, and he's perfect and how he, that's scary, but you're so glad that he's holy, that the creator of this universe is absolutely righteous. That's like something that brings your heart joy. But then I started thinking about my own life and all the failures, all like as you get older, it's just you look back and it's like the, the accumulation of sins, just selfishness and lack of love for God and lack of love for others and disobedience and how short I've fallen, who I'm supposed to be and, and who I am. Thinking about the law of God and how it's, it's rigid in a sense. It's, it's, it's what it is. It's It's right. It's right. And it gets heavy. And then I started thinking about how I'm totally forgiven and right with God. And that's hard, that's hard to wrap your mind around. Totally forgiven. And, and the future I have, that I'll be who I'm supposed to be. That one day I'm going to be glorified. I'm actually going to be the me that I'm supposed to be. And it's going to be God and his grace that's done it. And it's overwhelming. The gospel is good news. And as you're personally enjoying the gospel, standing by the cross and thinking about the God who became man to die in your place, you want to tell that to others. We've got to share the gospel, not just because it's a, a duty, but because we know the gospel and we're personally enjoying the gospel and discipleship starts there and begins doing that in our own home, actually. I was somewhere recently and they had a panel and they asked the panel to 
share a story of a person they shared the gospel with. And one lady talked about someone she had prayed for for 13 years and who she had been talking to every single day. And it was someone she had cried about and pleaded with God about. And she told about one specific opportunity she had to sit down and have a couple hour discussion. And it was, it was just so in the moment, you know, this person had struggled with this particular sin and she was able to talk about that. And they had such a relationship. She knew that person. She knew when she was making excuses. She knew who she was talking to. And you know who she was talking about? <laughs> she was talking about witnessing to one of her own daughters. Some people think so much about going out, they neglect the people at home. And yet, of course, there is this big whole world out there. We want to reach for Christ. And while making disciples and sharing the gospel starts at home, it doesn't end there. You want to make an impact for Christ, engage with unbelievers, share the gospel, engage with believers, actually, share the gospel. Second, depend on God. This is last week, but we're almost to this week. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, we saw Paul doing what he almost always does. He begins almost every letter this way, giving thanks to God. And here, it's for the Thessalonians' faith and love. And he was giving thanks to God because he believed God is the one who produced the transformation in the Thessalonians' life. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And seeing Paul thank God for what had happened in the Thessalonians' life gives us hope because we're not Paul. And one of our favorite excuses so often when it comes to discipling and sharing the gospel is that we're just not gifted enough to make a difference in someone else's life. But the difference doesn't come from us, it comes from God. So stop making excuses and pray. Even Paul realized it was God who did this. And we need to be people who depend on God and ask God to change people. In fact, if you want a disciple, you might make a list. Identify certain people, write their names down, and start praying specifically for ways you're hoping they can grow. Some of us, were not the most outgoing people in the world. And so when we think about discipleship, we're a little intimidated because we think, oh, it's hard for me even to get to know someone else. But if you start here, getting on your knees and praying for people, asking God for opportunities to get involved in their lives, he will. Third, tell the gospel, depend on God. Third, encourage people, develop a relationship with someone, get to know them, who they are, what's going on in their lives, and start looking for ways God is working. Look and see what God is doing and make plans to encourage them. And I realize maybe that seems like a funny place to start and even sort of small actually, encourage, affirm. But it's something you see Paul doing in almost every letter he writes to these believers who were living there in the first century. Like, take this first chapter here in Thessalonians as an example. It's almost all he does. I mean, if you just look at verses 2 through 10 and notice all the different ways Paul praises the Thessalonians. In verse 3, he tells them that he's thanking God for three specific evidences of spiritual fruit he sees in their life. 
faith, love, and hope. And then in verse four, he describes them as family, for we know brothers. And he goes on and affirms that they're loved by God and even chosen by God, which is a way of saying that he's sure they're true Christians. And then in verse six, he talks about his experience among them and reminds them of their response to God's word. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In verse seven, he looks at the results of their faith and he tells them they become an example to others. In verse eight, he talks about the ways in which their faith has impacted even his ministry in other places. And then in verse nine, he indirectly encourages them about the way they treated him. And he highlights the fact that others are taking notice of their genuine conversion as well. And that's just like seven verses are just a few verses and seven different encouragements. And if you go back and look a little more carefully, it may not even be all of them. Paul was good at encouraging believers. This was like a hallmark of his ministry. There are uh, some people where it almost feels like they're waiting for you to fail. And it's almost, it's almost like they've got their clipboard and they're watching you and they're writing down all your mistakes. And they're better at spotting how you're not measuring up than they are at seeing what God is doing in your life. And that I think is actually a theological problem <laughs> at its heart. It's not cultural, it is not personality. There is something getting twisted in there. Obviously some of the ways we encourage culturally is gonna be a little different, but encouraging is not cultural. It's biblical because we're not just talking about closing our eyes to reality and saying everything is awesome. And actually, Americans are kind of known for this culturally, being relentlessly positive, even when it doesn't make sense. Uh, Germans, my German friends will often say that to me. And, and so we're not talking about uh, just building someone's self-esteem. We're talking about praising God for what he's doing in a person's life. That's encouragement. We're talking about believing that God works and looking for that. We're talking about being excited about what God says is exciting and talking about it. You know, if you meet someone who likes nice cars and he sees a nice car, what does he do? He praises it. Why? Because that's what we do as humans. We commend things that are important to us. And if you're a maturing Christian, what is important to you is spiritual fruit. And you see that in someone's life and you wanna praise God for it and you wanna motivate them to keep going because it's beautiful and it's good. I like how Sam Crabtree puts it. He was a pastor with someone named John Piper, but he's written a book actually on encouragement or affirmation. And he writes, great persons commend great things. The greatest individuals commend the greatest things. They search for that which is most commendable and then set out to magnify it with speech, enjoy it with praise, and invite others to join them in glad admiration by calling attention to its superior qualities. And ultimately, of course, that's why as a church we're big into worship. We are searching out great big things about God and praising him for it. And yet, you know, that's also why we're big into encouragement. It's not about helping people worship themselves better. It's about helping them worship God. And it's about us worshiping God as well, because we know if there's anything good going on in a person's life, it's God who's doing it. 
And you seeing that is a way of you worshiping God. And you helping them see that is a way of you helping them worship God. And it's also a way of you giving them hope so they'll keep going. Encouraging others is important for a lot of reasons. It's a way of teaching what's important. When you encourage someone, you're showing them the right path. It's a way of praising God. And it's important because when you're discipling someone, you're going to have to be doing a lot of correcting. There is a lot of pointing out what's wrong that's going on in discipleship. And that correcting is important. But if all you're doing is correcting, it can get pretty discouraging. And once a person loses hope, he loses motivation. And so good disciplers are always looking for opportunities to praise God and give hope by pointing a person back to what God's doing in their life. Do you see this? Do you see what God's doing? Do you see how much he loves you? Plus, it's just exciting seeing change in people. And yet, you know, this is one of those things that you have to work on because sometimes when you're working with people, all you can see is problems, especially if you've been friends for a while. You know it's easy to stop seeing the good and to begin only noticing the negatives. And sometimes it feels like everything becomes so negative. And so if you're working on encouraging them, if this becomes like a, a discipline, a habit, it forces you to look for things to encourage them about. And it helps you not develop a warped perspective on what God's doing in their life. God can change people. God does change people. If they are truly Christians, God, you know, is at work making them more like Jesus Christ. And you have to look for it. And obviously sometimes it's slow. You don't learn to walk in a day. But imagine if with your kids, uh, they're like one and they're learning to walk and, and, and they take their first step and fall. And you're like, what is your problem? You are so bad at walking. That's like only one step, loser walker. No, you're cheering. You're like, hey, look, you took a step. And that's part of what motivates them to take another one. Fourth, this is just kind of simple. We talk about making disciples, but how do we do it actually? Share the gospel, pray for people, get to know someone and do what Paul does everywhere. Start looking for what God's doing in their life and encourage them and spend time with them with the goal of showing them what it looks like to follow Jesus. Teach, but don't just teach the faith, model the faith. This was actually part of Paul's strategy, and you see that in verses four and five. Paul writes, for we know, uh, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now here it is. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And that's not just a, a passing comment for Paul. I, I think we think about Paul and we think about his ministry and we think about preaching. And obviously he did a lot of that, but Paul didn't only tell people how to follow Christ, he showed them. And this was a deliberate, intentional part of his ministry strategy. Maybe it comes out more clearly if you just flip over to 2 Thessalonians chapter three where Paul says in verses seven and eight, for you yourselves know 
how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you an example to imitate. It's pretty amazing because here Paul is with the Thessalonians and he sees that there's actually a specific problem in that community with laziness. And so he decides in that community, he needs to give up his right to be paid. And even though it's gonna make his life more difficult, he's gonna work with them or he's gonna work actually while he's with them for the purpose of setting an example so they can follow it. And that wasn't just Paul's personal approach either. This is what he told his disciples to do. In Titus, he says, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, Titus 2, 7 and 8. Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, in purity, 1 Timothy 4, 12. Philippians chapter three, he actually tells the church there, look for people who are imitating me so that you can imitate, as I imitate Jesus, so that you can imitate them. And even here back in 1 Thessalonians chapter one, we see the progression, verse six, you became imitators of us and the Lord. Verse seven, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. One of the ways God intends us to learn how to live the Christian life out is through examples. And one of the ways he intends us to help others learn to live the Christian life out is by being an example. In other words, you want a disciple. You need to get together with a young Christian. You need to invite them into your life and you need to say, watch me. Come, watch me which maybe to some of you at first sounds kind of arrogant, like, I can't say be like me. But this is not about being arrogant at all because you don't want them to imitate your personality, please. You, you don't want them to imitate your sense of humor. You want them to imitate the way God's grace has worked in you. And you know how hard it is to learn to put the truth into practice. And so if you learn how even a little, it's only because God taught you. And if God taught you that, you wanna share it with others. And you know one way to share it is by talking, by teaching, but another way to share it is by showing. And so you don't just explain prayer, you pray with people. You show them what it means to pray. You show them what it looks like to work. You show them what it looks like to be a church member. And so maybe you're talking with someone about having devotions, then you give them the steps and they go away and they try and it doesn't go well. So then you say, you know what? Why don't you have devotions with me? Come over and I'll just do what I do in devotions with you there. And the, the difference for most people would be huge. I like how one person said it, as disciplers, you wanna try to find ways to make your everyday life Visible, accessible, and reproducible. Visible, people can see the way you live. Accessible, they can get to you. And reproducible, they can, in a sense, do what you do. 
And you know, I love that vision for discipleship, but it sometimes can feel a little overwhelming, honestly. Like if that's part of discipleship, how is it possible? Because I'm busy. And that's why we need so many disciplers, actually, because there's no way one person's life can be visible and accessible to everyone, especially in our fast-paced culture. Which is why as a church, we're in this together and each of you needs to intentionally focus on certain people and find ways for them to see your marriage, to see your parenting, to see your interaction with your neighbors and with others. And when you do, let them see the real thing as well. The real you, not the pretend you. It's not gonna do anyone much good if you're always trying to impress them with who you're not. There needs to be a kind of transparency about you and your life with the people you're discipling. If you look at the first few chapters of 1 Thessalonians, it's kind of striking how often Paul says these words, you know, verse five, right there in the middle, you know what kind of men we prove to be. Chapter two, verse one, for you yourselves know, verse two, you know we had boldness in our God. Verse five, we never came with words of flattery, as you know. Verse nine, a little different, but the same idea. For you remember, verse 10, you are witnesses. Verse 11, for you know. Then chapter three, verse three, for you yourselves know. Chapter three, verse four, just as you know. Chapter four, verse two, you know. And obviously one reason Paul can say this so often to them about so many different things in his life is because he's convinced they do know which is maybe the scary part for some of us. And that's why we like keeping people away because letting them get to know the real us, that takes humility because the real us isn't always that awesome. Sometimes I go to missions conferences and because I was a missionary for a while, they asked me to share stories about when we were a missionary. And I, I'm, I hate that. I like preaching the Bible. I don't like telling stories about our time there because I think about myself and what happened and it's, it's, I'm not all that awesome. And yet I know how God's used other people's real life stories in my life and so I have to be humble and say, well, at least let me try and see what God does with that. And you letting people know you and see you and understand what's going on in your head and how you, you're processing biblical truth is sometimes frightening because people are tough and you don't know how they're gonna take it and what they're gonna think. But this isn't about you having lots of fans. This is about serving God by trying to help people know and follow Jesus. And if you're gonna do that, there needs to be like with Paul, some transparency. Fifth, and, and again, I know this isn't rocket science here, but you want a disciple, what do you do? Share the gospel, pray for people, develop a relationship with someone and care about what's going on in their life spiritually and look for ways God is at work and encourage them with that and, and find some people and try to let them into your life and be an example, show them how to follow Jesus and then get ready. Because the truth is it's probably gonna get a little difficult. So fifth, you're gonna to have to stick with people in the ups and downs. In other words, persevere in difficulty. Paul persevered in difficulty. If you fast forward down to the beginning of chapter two, you see how he describes a little of what his ministry was like. For you, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. So for Paul, just to get to the Thessalonians, there's physical suffering and there's even embarrassment. He says he had been shamefully treated. In fact, he describes what was going on in his life at that point as much conflict. And, and you know, for most of us, those would be three big reasons to stop reaching out to the people around us. Like, why aren't you involved in ministry? Well, one, it's painful. Two, it's embarrassing. And three, there's conflict. I'm out. I think sometimes what happens when we're young or young Christians, just getting involved in the ministry, we're excited and we think, you know, if, if we just wanna serve Jesus and love people and try to do the right thing, then it's gonna be amazing and everybody's gonna love me or at least be thankful. And then we try and it's hard <laughs> and it doesn't go the way we like. And we're like, can I do this? Maybe I can't do this. Maybe I'm doing something wrong and we give up. But the reality is the fact that it's hard doesn't necessarily mean that at all. And maybe what we need to do is just keep going, like Paul. Because obviously I'm here with you and, and, and you're here today because of what God did through the Apostle Paul. So there was a lot of success. But during Paul's life, it didn't always look like a lot of success. If you read the end of 2 Timothy, his followers have left him, Luke's the only one with him. He says in this one particular conflict, everyone deserted him. Even here in 1 Thessalonians, the reason Paul's having to say, you know so often, it seems is because he's having to remind them what his life was like because there were questions in people's minds. Maybe mostly because he wasn't visiting them yet, which is one of the hardest parts about getting involved in someone else's life and caring because sometimes you feel like you've gone through so much for them and they don't even notice. Or later it seems like they have questions about you in spite of all you went through to help them follow Christ. You can't let yourself fall into this like hero mode where you're serving people and you're like, look at me, I'm caring, I'm so different. I'm one of those people who goes out of my way for people and I'm laying it all on the line for Jesus. And you know, that gets difficult because sometimes people will encourage you. They'll be like, look at you, look at how you're serving people. And you get these expectations. I'm doing this so God should do this. But look, first of all, you don't deserve anything. Scrubbing a toilet for Jesus is more than you deserve. Second of all, you very rarely are as amazing as you think you are and sacrificing as much as you think you are. And third of all, God's so much smarter than we are. And just because he's not doing what you think he should be doing at that moment in the life of the people you're reaching out to doesn't mean he's not working or that he doesn't have some sort of amazing plan. He definitely does. You just need to stick with it. I've been sharing this past week with um, a few people, the story of David and Sevilla Flood. And I don't have the time to tell it very well right now. Google it. But they were Scandinavian missionaries who went to the Congo, of the DRC, and they basically went where no one else wanted to go. And they were with this tribe, and the tribe wouldn't even let them live with them. They had to live on the outside of the tribe. No one would listen, except for this one young boy who was allowed to sell them like eggs or chickens or something. And he became a Christian. And then Sevilla Flood died just a little bit after he became a Christian, uh, and they had given birth to a baby girl. 
And uh, her husband, David Flood, at that point got so angry, something they say snapped in him, that he decided to go back to Sweden and he actually left the baby girl there with other missionaries because he was angry at God. And then those missionaries died a year later. So there were some American missionaries who adopted her, took her back to America. She became a Christian. She ended up marrying a pastor. And anyway, she grows older and uh, she's interested in all things Scandinavian because she knew a little bit of her background. So she would get these Swedish magazines and she gets this Swedish religious magazine in her mailbox and she can't read it because it's in Swedish, but she's looking at the pictures and she sees a picture of a, a grave with a cross and on the cross are the words Sevilla Flood, which was her mom. And so she goes and she tries to find someone to translate this story for her and she finds out it's about this little African boy her mom had witnessed to and who grew up and built a school in his village and he ended up leading uh, many of his students to Christ who then went back home and led their parents to Christ and most of that village ended up becoming Christians, which is amazing, but it gets better because someone gives her and her husband a, vi a, a gift of a, a vacation to Sweden and when she's there, she looks for her birth father and he's an old man and he's left the faith and he's a drunk and she wants to meet him and he's willing, but the people who take her say, whatever you do, don't talk to him about God. And yet uh, she walks in and he's in his apartment. He's actually lying on the bed. He's got he's, these liquor bottles all around him and she speaks his name and he starts to cry and he starts to tell her he's so sorry. And she tells him, it's all right. God took care of me. And he gets angry. He says, he turns, he actually turns over, looks at the wall and says, don't talk to me about that God. God forgot us. Our lives are ruined because of him. And she puts her arm on his shoulder and she says, dad, you didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. That little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win that whole village to Jesus. That one seed you planted just kept growing and growing. Today, there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you went to that village. And apparently over time, as she talked with her father, he ended up repenting. And of course, all that's amazing, but you know, he could have avoided so much suffering if he had just trusted God knew what he was doing in the first place and kept going when it was difficult. You wanna serve Jesus and help people, even your own children. It is going to be difficult, I guarantee you. It's not always gonna look like it's turning out the way you want. People are gonna fail you. Your children probably are gonna fail you. They're gonna disappoint you. They're gonna do well, and then they're not gonna do well. They're gonna get upset with you. They're gonna get upset about some of the things that you think you were right in doing for them and were even good. It happened to Jesus. It happened to Paul. It's gonna to happen to us, but it shouldn't cause us to give up on pursuing people's best. You wanna make an impact, keep going. Stick with people, even when it's hard for you and the change seems slow. And obviously I know there's nuance to this because some people are unrepentant and hard-heartedly so. And if you look at Jesus's ministry, the rich young ruler walked away and Jesus didn't follow him around for the rest of his life. 
Of course, Jesus had three years, too, and he knew when he was going to be crucified. He had a very specific mission, but you are limited for sure, and you have to think about how to use your time most effectively, and sometimes people need to feel the consequence of their choices, and one of the consequences is a different kind of relationship. But I guess I'm talking more about your attitude, less about the nuance and more about your attitude, because most of us love comfort, and discipling someone honestly, is, is often not very comfortable at all. And if you're only willing to do it when it turns out the way you think it should, when you're not going to last very long in discipleship. So if you're going to help people, you need to pray that God would give you a conviction. I am going to pursue their spiritual good until I can't anymore. Because, you know, there are just a lot of reasons to give up when you're trying to help people follow Jesus. And the only way you're going to make a long-term impact on people is if you're able to stick with them, even when it's difficult. Sixth, we said there's eight, and we don't want to, we got to get back to our Old Testament series here next week. So I will finish this. But six, a sixth key, maintain your aim or stay on point, which sounds a little funny, but I just mean we have an aim. We have a goal in discipling others. There's something motivating us. And Paul did as well. He had a motivation. And we see in chapter 2, verse 3, for Paul, it's pleasing God. He says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts, which is our aim as well. It's got to be the glory of God that drives you into these kind of relationships. You wanna please God, and I know you know that, but you have to work at maintaining that perspective. Stay on point, maintain your aim. You can't let that slip because it's weird, but believe it or not, there are lots of reasons that people get involved in ministering to other people, which are not always good. And sometimes you start out with a pretty good motive, you want the glory of God, but you're not careful and it begins to get a little strange where you're doing the right thing for the wrong reasons and one of the biggest distractions is we start making pleasing people more important than pleasing God somehow somewhere it stops being primarily about glorifying God and starts being mostly about our reputation and the approval of other people and that I'm telling you is the death of a discipleship relationship in fact, in Galatians 1.10, Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Which almost every time I read it, it's almost like, close the Bible, go away, and be super convicted. There are only two options. Being driven by a desire to please people or being a servant of Jesus. And you have to keep preaching that to yourself. This is not about you feeling good about yourself, about you being a good person. It's not about proving to other people you're a good Christian and you do discipleship. It's not about other people being impressed by the kind of person you are. It is about making God look great. And so as you go to disciple someone someone else, you need to be asking, what would I say to them? How would I relate to them if God's agenda And God's approval was more important to me than theirs. Imagine if we did that in our relationships. And there are a couple ways Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
that you uh, can evaluate yourself. And you find them in verse five. Paul says, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know. So that's one. Is, is it about the glory of God? Look at how you're talking. Are you telling people positive things that are not true to get something from them? That's not encouragement, that's, that's flattery. Two, look at your motivation, Paul says, nor with a pretext for greed. In other words, are you manipulating people to get something you want, using them to advance your agenda? And three, verse six, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Are you demanding people show you all kinds of respect? I get worried when people who are trying to help others start having all these expectations of how those people should treat them and respond to them. And when they start using their position or title, like, hey, don't you know who I am? Yeah, I know who you are. You are a servant a slave of Jesus. It's nice if people show you respect, but you don't deserve it. You are a servant. It's not about your glory. It's about Jesus, which is what motivated Paul. He says, we spoke to please God. In other words, you know us. We kept the main thing, the main thing. And honestly, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of people like that. So if you want to make an impact, you just do that. You're going to be different. There is something powerful about a person who is living his life devoted to glorifying and pleasing God in absolutely every area. You meet that kind of person, they're like a fire. You just warm up spiritually being near them. So be that person for others. I think sometimes we make discipleship too complicated. I can't do this. How do I do this? I don't know what book to read, what program to go through. But it's not about finding the right book to study with them or the right program. It's about going to God every day and pleading with him that his glory will matter to you more than anything else and getting fired up like that for Jesus and then going and being with other people and not getting distracted by trying to get their approval or getting them to do something for you. And God uses that single-minded kind of passion to warm others up. Seventh. Chapter two, verses seven and eight. A disciple maker cares for for people. And this one could have come earlier, but Paul writes, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother tenderly taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And this is here where he's making a contrast. And he's saying, instead of making our ministry all about us, trying to get your respect and trying to have everything revolve around us, you know, we were deeply concerned about your good, which caused us to be gentle. And we treated you with a tender care. What kind of tender care? The kind of tender care that a nursing mother has with her own children. These weren't just like people for Paul to dump data on. These people meant something to him. I love the second part of the verse where he says, so being affectionately desirous of you. In other words, there was something going on in Paul's heart as he thought about them. He didn't just come to like dispense information at them. He wanted to share himself with them because he says at the end of the verse, you had become very dear to us. I was at a conference recently about truth and love and they had this conference because they were concerned some people were acting as if those qualities were in competition. You're either into truth or you're into love, which would have been hard for Paul to even process because you couldn't be more theologically minded than Paul 
And yet, what did all that theology do? It caused him to love Jesus and to love people. And if you want to disciple people, you need to love them like Paul did and ultimately like Jesus did, which is what makes discipleship so simple and so hard at the same time. It is simple. If you pursue Christ and love people, you will make an impact. It's not complicated. But actually caring about people more than you care about yourself is where we get stuck because almost anybody can get a book and read that book with someone or go through a study with someone. But to love someone so much that you can describe your concern for them like that of a mother with their children, that's something else. And I know for me, I've often lacked that real love. It's, uh, I just have to sometimes sit there, Josh, love people, or God, please help me love people. It's humbling to think about how much you care about yourself and how little you care for others. I remember in uh, university having to go out and confront someone because he had cheated on uh, uh, paper. He actually, you, I had used his computer. He had uh, copied my paper, and it was for, for a class for my dad. So that's kind of funny. Like that's the. Um, so I had to go confront him and uh, talk to him about that. And you know, I, I like, um, brother. You know, uh, one of us copied, and it, it wasn't me. And um, you know his. Uh, his lip starts quivering, and he starts weeping, you know, shaking like that. And we happened to be up in this upper parking lot at night. And so I had to kind of like hug him. And I remember as he's weeping there, this like really good moment, mostly thinking, oh, I hope nobody drives up right now because this is so awkward having to hug this guy up here. And man, selfishness, right? All I can think about is how I look when this guy's weeping because he's so concerned about his sin. And I'm thankful that Jesus' love for us is so much better than our love for others. Jesus doesn't love you because you perfectly love the people that you're discipling. But that's not an excuse for not loving, that's motivation. And if you wanna take a step towards becoming a better disciple maker, look around you, find someone, and pray that God would help you love them and then love them. Want their best as much as you want your own. Finally, eighth, and finally, only because this is one of those things I could talk about all day and you're getting that idea. So there's gotta be some sort of finally. Share the gospel, pray for people, encourage the saints, model the faith, persevere in difficulty, stay on point, maintain your aim, care for people, and speak the truth. Because when you get right down to it, discipling is teaching. It's not just hanging out with people. Jesus says, make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And if you look at verses 9 to 11 of chapter 2, Paul says he did that. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And there are all kinds of different words there, proclaimed, exhorted, encouraged, charged, and I think that illustrates just how desperate Paul was to help them understand the truth and apply it to their lives. 
And so if you're not teaching, you're not discipling. Discipleship involves friendship, but not any kind of friendship. It's a friendship with the intention of deliberately passing on truth and specifically helping them know how to put the truths they're learning into practice. And obviously there are like a million different ways you can do that. You can do it in the classroom. You can do it from the pulpit. That's kind of what I'm trying to do right now. You can do it over a cup of coffee. But what I want you to hear is whether or not you think you're a gifted teacher, if you're a Christian, you can do that at some level, at some level. Maybe you can listen to a podcast with someone and talk about it or go to a conference and discuss what you learned or just read the Bible with somebody. In fact, that's one of the best ways to make an impact. I was reading somewhere a pastor, he, he asked one of the most effective disciple makers he knew to share with him his discipleship method. And he says, I was expecting a fancy curriculum with a silver bullet technique. Instead, he sent me a scanned list of 31 Bible verse references he had typed out on a word processor back in the 80s. He told me that he gives this list to someone, asks them to take one verse a day, and write beside each of the references what God is teaching them through that passage. He meets with them weekly to discuss their answers. After that, he said, he asked them if they want to read a book of the Bible together and do the same thing. That was it. No secret sauce, no electrifying jolt of discipleship genius, no magic formula, no Jedi mind tricks. Yet just about every time our church had a baptism service, that disciple maker had somebody represented in the lineup, either from him directly or through someone he led to Christ, bringing someone else to Christ. Just last weekend, I met a guy who had been led to Christ by a guy who had been led to Christ by a guy who had been led to Christ by a guy who had been led to Christ by a guy who had been led to Christ by a guy who had been led to Christ by this guy. If you're counting, that's six generations. That means he is a spiritual great, 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 great grandfather, and he's not even 50 years old yet. And oh yeah, he's not seminary trained. What about you? What about us? Because there's a lot that goes into being a church. There's a lot of different skills that are needed. Administrative skills, financial skills, musical skills, leadership skills. But all of those skills aren't accomplishing much if they aren't helping us obey Jesus' great commission. Make disciples. That's our vision for 2021 and beyond. Make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And one thing I love about CBC, I know this isn't something radically new for you. This is something you're already doing. And I'm praying we'll keep doing and keep getting better. Why? It's a command and it makes the gospel look beautiful. How? I'm not advocating so much a program as a lifestyle. Imitate Paul. Imitate Paul as he imitated Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this is kind of simple how to make disciples and yet um, we need to obey and not just obey out of some duty like we check this off we're disciple makers uh, but Lord we ask that you would revive our hearts with the gospel and and show us the beauty of our Savior Jesus Christ as we study your word and as we live life and fill us up with a passion with worship and a desire to make you look great and so that even if we're not good at talking, even if we're not uh, extroverts, we, we just depend on you and depending on you know we have to help others 
come to appreciate the gospel and learn how to live like Jesus. Please help us, God. We're so weak, but you are strong. And in this we depend. In your name, amen.